1: That little ditty is a blast from the past. It's called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane by Johnny and the Hurricanes. It's from their 1960 album, The Big Sound of Johnny and the Hurricanes. That's available on Apple Music.
2: Good afternoon, Richard. How are you? I'm great on this beautiful fall afternoon here in the western edge of the Kansas City metro.
1: Yes, our winter storm passed through last week. We survived and now it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. And we're here recording. We're, we're looking a little bit forward to the future, to the holidays. And we want to wish everyone a happy hag-sploitation holiday.
2: You know, last year we spent it with uh, our, our good uh, buddy Larry Cohen. And so keeping up on that creepy tradition for the holidays, let, let's let's invite some hags who need a little love during the, the festive time of year. It's so... It's such a cruel name for these <laughs> movies,
1: and uh, it, we'll talk a little bit about the evolution of the subgenre and what exactly it means. But it started out with kind of a legitimate name, and then it just devolved. And, you know, I mean, hagsploitation, that's not very complimentary, really. But for... would you rather
2: be called a hag or a psycho bitty? I don't know. <laughs>
1: it, it depends what it day depends. it is. Yeah. Well, I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.Club.
2: And I'm Richard Chamberlain from com and MonstermovieKid.wordpress.com.
1: So we have hags galore coming up, and we'll do all of that right after some old business. Let's go ahead and call the meeting to order. We don't have any uh, feedback per se to play in the form of a voicemail or an email. We're recording a little bit early uh, for once. It's kind of nice. In lieu of that, I, I just wanted to mention our last episode where we talked about the two Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies. Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion 2150 AD had generated a lot of conversation on our Facebook group page. You must be just smiling uh, some satisfaction, Richard. I think maybe that's gotten the most feedback we've gotten on an episode is people commenting on Doctor Who.
2: Well, that and Dark Shadows. I think uh, we, there was a lot of comments on that and I think they that's interesting because both shows have such incredible depth as far as the sheer number of hours doctor who obviously more than dark shadows simply because it's been going on for longer you know but still both are very daunting to dive into and so i think anytime you have a discussion you're going to have people who absolutely love the shows and those who are curious and want to know more And, and peter cushing is a good way to get a taste of who without making a commitment of thousands and thousands of hours and so it's like if you like what you see there Well, then there's a lot more you can kind of dive into. And I know some people were commenting that they would either see the Peter Cushing films, you know, if they were going to watch any Doctor Who, or that they were curious about seeing more. You know, Classic Who is an acquired taste. If you are a Dark Shadows fan and you are okay with cheaper sets, wobbly walls, a slower-paced storytelling kind of format then Classic Who is definitely going to be what you're looking for. But if you want something that's a little more contemporary, then you've got plenty of New Who to watch as well. It was, uh, the revival started in 2005. So here we are almost 15 years later and uh, it's been going fairly consecutively. They've had a gaps of a year and a half sometimes uh, between seasons, but you got plenty of episodes to watch either way and and, uh, they're all readily available newer who is a little easier to get a hold of than the uh, the classic stuff and i believe if i remember correctly hbo max when it launches in 2020 doctor who is going to be on that uh app they had signed a deal with the bbc um and so i think they're going to get some bbc shows including doctor who and i'm going to assume They weren't talking classic. They were talking the more contemporary one. Plus, BBC America will run marathons of Doctor Who quite frequently, especially when uh, the show is coming back on the air, which it is supposed to start up again in early 2020, so they'll probably get some good marathons of Doctor Who going on there. So there you go. That's how you can get it. This one uh, Facebook
1: thread that was going, uh, I just want to call out the, the people that were participating in that, Bill Mize from the Bill Watches Movies podcast, Trevor McKay, Alistair Hughes, Stephen Turek, and Paul Minturn. Thank you all for talking. There were others. Uh, we, we post the episode several times to remind people it's there. So uh, You can join the Facebook group page absolutely free of charge. You just have to catch Richard or I on a good day where we say, okay, you can join, <laughs> uh, and, and we'll say yes, and then we will try our best to welcome you, and we'll also welcome you here on the podcast like we're going to do with our two newest members, Michael Jones...
2: And Andrew Oblivion welcome welcome to the club and I'm gonna say this quick disclaimer we have the window open so you might hear a random noise in the background much like the truck that's passing by it needs a muffler in any case uh, it's a beautiful day we've got the windows open here when you have days like today uh, less than a week after we had wind chills below zero you kind of open the windows and take advantage because you know it's not gonna last So anyway, I apologize for any background noise. Yes, you can live vicariously through us because if
1: this episode drops the first week of December, chances are it's going to be colder and you can remember fondly the day that it was so warm (laughs) Jeff and Richard could have the window open. (laughs) That was how you join the Facebook group page. And we do invite you to leave voicemails if you would like. We have a number 616-649-2582. That's 816. Excuse me, 816. 616. <laughs> six. Richard is looking at me intently. He's prepared to say the part that never knows. You're not going to catch me off guard he this is. time. All right. 616-649. Six six, six Club. Very good. <laughs> All right. Anything else any other old business, anything we need to resolve before we move on?
2: You know, uh, we're only a few weeks removed from Halloween, I'm sure everyone is kind of the same thing that at post-Halloween let down or or you know coming off that high everyone i think that we know watched 1 million movies in october and so you get to this point where it's just kind of a slower pace i have not watching as many movies and gearing up for the holidays and stuff so but we've got some good stuff lined up for you and and i hopefully the movies we're going to talk about uh this week i have a feeling there's people out there who probably haven't seen all of these exploitation films don't get talked about quite as much and i'm excited to to dive into these i know this is a, a genre that you've been really wanting to dive into for a while so i think this is going to be fun and and we've got i don't think we've mentioned the films that we're covering no, uh probably this not week, so we're going to start off with a classic whatever happened to baby jane from 1962 then it's whatever happened to aunt alice in 1969 Whoever slew Auntie Rue from 1971, and will probably have a word or two, I know I do, about what's the matter with Helen. We're not reviewing that one proper, but Jeff and I both watched it, and yes, I've got a word or two yeah. about that, so we'll do a little sidestep on that. But some fun stuff, and definitely starting off with a classic.
1: At the risk of going down a rabbit hole, and if this goes too far, I will edit it out. I wanted to just... Mentioned something that's kind of going on And that's with the movie Doctor Sleep Richard and I both saw it and I think we enjoyed it immensely Yes, one of my favorites
2: of the year actually
1: And there's been a lot of talk about why didn't people go see it And it wasn't the number one movie And oh my gosh, it's a flop And that just really kind of stuck with me this week And I have some thoughts about that And just the whole
2: phenomenon of so instantly judging something we could do a whole show, I think, on the reasons why, but I, some of my initial thoughts were yes. People are, are are jumping to conclusions and saying this, and the studios expected the movie to do better than it actually did, and what are the reasons why? It lost out to Midway, which that's another movie that the critics have been blasting it. They don't like it, yet it's one of my favorites of the year, and really the, the question is, does a movie have to be a Shakespearean classic for it to be enjoyable? Everybody enjoys different things. I went into Midway and I wanted to be enjoyed. I wanted to to I, I wanted to be enjoyed. I wanted to enjoy it. <laughs> Why do you go to movies? Right? I, I, I assume Carla was with you. <laughs> yes, uh, I wanted to you know just escape for for two and a half hours. And I've heard people complain. Well, you know the Pearl Harbor scene wasn't long enough. It wasn't about pearl harbor it was about midway i didn't expect the pearl harbor scene to last as long as it did i I don't know you know midway was a really good movie it made it uh, more money than they thought it's probably still not going to make it its money back because it had such a high budget but i enjoyed it it's one of my favorite films of the year as was dr sleep and the question is is if a movie doesn't make so much money the first weekend is it really a flop because there's a lot of other ways that movie is going to make money. And the fact is that movies, yes, I get it, the, the theaters are, are a big money maker, But you've got home video sales, you've got rentals, you've got streaming. That movie is going to continue. All movies continue to make money for years after they've been released. Yeah, the studios won't make all their money back the first week or first two and that can often determine whether or not a director gets another assignment, or an actor has another, you know, starring role, or whether a sequel is made. I just don't think in this day and age that's entirely fair. Our viewing habits are changing drastically, and and I think with Doctor Sleep, it's a movie that's going to gain more respect as time wears on because it really is a good film. Is, is it perfect? No, there's a few flaws with it, but. Again, I was entertained, and could it have been a marketing issue? We talked about that. It really played in heavy to the fact that it was a sequel to The Shining, which factored into the movie, obviously, and the fact that it's been so long since The Shining. A lot of younger moviegoers probably haven't seen The Shining, and therefore weren't as connected to it. Who's the audience for the movie? Well, the audience is going to be probably older, and then that begs the question, older moviegoers typically don't rush out the first weekend that a movie is out. They don't want to deal with the this, this Saturday night crowds at the theaters. Older moviegoers who enjoy The Shining, chances are they're gonna go on a Tuesday or Wednesday night and you know we'll, we'll try to go in the first couple weeks after a movie comes out. So Dr. Sleep could end up making its money back over a period of time, just not the first week. I I disagree that it's a that it's a flop. So it didn't make its money back the first weekend. That doesn't mean it's a flop. It's a really good movie. Couple things real quick. First of all,
1: neither movie did very well. No. Uh, no. And you know this whole notion that if a movie doesn't make a hundred thousand dollars its first weekend, it's a flop is ridiculous. A hundred million. How about <laughs> that? <laughs> yes. But I, I don't think either one no. was considered a, a hit just because Midway came out. First, uh, there was conversation with the uh, Kansas City critics group that for both of those movies, the studios would not really do any promotion. They didn't offer advanced screenings. They didn't offer cast or uh, behind the scenes talent for interviews. I honestly thought the Dr. Sleep trailer was horrible. I didn't care to see it because it looked, in fact, before we saw it, I told Richard, I just hope they don't. Overused scenes from The Shining. That's what the trailer made it look
2: like. That, and I think that was the wrong approach. Well, the amount of the, you know they played a few of the bars from The Shining, right? The music, as, and honestly, what you see in the trailer is about as much as you get in the movie. I don't even know if you get all that. You, you get it in like in that one scene. Like yeah, the start of the but it, I mean, but those
1: were. Spoiler, I mean, those are recreations. That was the other thing I really liked. They didn't use clips from The Shining. They recreated them with different actors. Uh, Shelley Duvall, that woman was channeling Shelley Duvall. Uh, But I thought the clips in the trailer were from The Shining. Well,
2: you know, but if you think about it, I don't think that they, I don't know if they were uh, or not. Maybe not. Because you don't ever see little Danny's face. You see... So they recreated the scene so well in the movie. Yeah. The scene where he's riding the bike, honestly, before I saw his face, I thought, well, here we go. Right. And then I saw his face and realized, oh, well, no, that, that's not him. The trailer was definitely very, very heavy on, hey, this is a sequel to The Shining. And I think that that might have hurt him. And it's true. If they don't do the press junket and all that kind of stuff, the critics automatically, right or wrong, are going to go into a movie and thinking, well we didn't get a chance to screen this, so it must be bad. And they automatically go in with this, this preconceived notion that the movie's problematic. I, I read some reviews on Midway, as you and I talked about, that just irritated me. When a movie critic is calling Midway a World War One movie, and this was on Variety.com, yes, they corrected it, but the fact that it even got published that way is, it's yeah, absolutely mind-boggling but another review I was reading about the critic immediately starts claiming that anyone who enjoys Midway is not a discerning you know film goer and I'm like seriously in your opening paragraph you're you're calling my opinion invalid and questioning that you know you must not really love movies because you enjoy Midway well at that point, anything else that he had to say or she had to say was null and void to me because they were calling my opinion invalid, and I'm not going to go for that either. So my opinion on film critics, it, it, it varies from person to person, but I do get irritated when critic, film critics, and they do have the power to hurt a movie, some movies in the box office, like A Midway or A Doctor's Sleep, that people will often wait and see what's the reviews on it. A Star Wars... People are going to go to that no matter what. But movies like Doctor Sleep or or you know Midway or other films, a lot of people, are wanting, they're going to hear what the critics say, and the critics have the power to make or break a film. I think another thing with Doctor Sleep is you and I talked about the fact that Stephen King's name is attached to it is not a guarantee of success because Stephen King movies are all across the board. Case in point, in the tall grass i watched that on netflix uh, in the last couple of weeks and that's a movie that's an hour and 40 minutes long it should not have been any longer than 30 minutes there's no reason why they should have ever thought that an hour and 40 minute movie would work and i guarantee you if you ask stephen king's opinion well, that's a good movie god love him he loves all his movies you know he's probably seeing, well i you know i'm making money off this no matter what But he never really criticizes his films too much. I think even Dark Tower, he had a few good words to say about it. And that's another thing. You know, I mean, Stephen King's name doesn't necessarily mean big box office because some of his films are not that great.
1: The thing about Doctor Sleep that I think is a little different than this phenomenon that happens quite a bit is that I think people that see it do like it. And it has gotten good reviews. And the, the whole kind of point for me is this generally is a considered a good movie and yet no one's seeing it and why is that and there used to be a thing called legs where a movie would come out and it might stay in the box office for i don't know three months or something and that it would accumulate equivalent of a big opening weekend and it would be considered a hit i think it's been many many years since anyone has cared about anything past opening weekend but I guess my final plea is go see Doctor Sleep. It's let's you know, keep it in theaters. Let's show that it ultimately makes money and I, I don't think you'll be disappointed. When a movie's good, I just think it's sad that people don't see it.
2: And I think my, my I'll just add and say, you know, it's it's fine to find a critic out there that you are in tune with and you trust, but Ultimately, be be your own judge of the movie. If you if you there's a movie you want to see, go out and support it. Not every movie is going to be great, but don't let someone else dictate whether you're going to go see a movie or not, because you're limiting yourself. Because if I would have listened to the critics, I wouldn't have gone to see Midway, and I enjoyed it. And you know, no one's going to change my opinion otherwise. I was entertained, and it did everything that I wanted out of of the movie. No, it's not the greatest film ever made, but it's one of my most enjoyable films of the year. You know what? Joker just passed the $1 billion mark. It's the first R-rated movie to do that. It's going to be at the top of everyone's list, and it will not be in my top 10 this year. I acknowledge that the movie was a well-made film. I wasn't entertained from start to finish with that movie. And so i'm gonna go against the grain and i know some people say well wow how could you not like the joker well i like the joker as far as you know acknowledging that it's a well-made film but i wasn't entertained i i it was not a feel-good movie for me and it's not one that i'm going to go back and revisit listen to the critics they're going to say go see joker and i wasn't entertained by it be your own judge when it comes to films go out and support movies and don't get so wrapped up in where a film finished and, and if is it you know a big hit the first weekend or not. Well, I guess I won't go because it flopped. Don't. Judge for yourself because you could be missing out on some really fun films.
1: That's right. I'm reminded
2: of a saying that I, I frequently
1: say. If everyone jumped off a cliff, would you also? So if everyone's hating it and not going, are you going to hate it and not go? Or are you going to go see it and enjoy it?
2: <laughs> what he said
1: Oh wow, well, we haven't had a good little rant in a while So I hope people forgive us about that We didn't have much old business So I thought, hey, I bet we could talk Can about we? that for a little bit And I
2: really want to point out that you started that <laughs> side rant So I, I just hey, followed
1: I'm watching the time And I think we're still going to come in under Our uh, usually our usual introduction time So Awesome And man, I'm biting my tongue I really, I got something else to say But maybe I'll save it for another episode
2: All right All right, we're going to dive into whatever happened to Baby Jane after these messages.
0: Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene. An Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers. The insistent call of a buzzer, better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you. If you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre. A venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. Hey, friend, for me? No, we, uh, we can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to Baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense.
2: Jane Hudson, a child vaudeville star, grows up into obscurity while her overshadowed sister, Blanche, becomes an acclaimed actress. After Blanche is involved in a strange accident, Jane cares for her in a mansion purchased with Blanche's movie earnings. Forty-five years after baby Jane was popular, she decides it's time for a revival and hires Edwin Flagg to help her. Meanwhile, she becomes more a cruel jailer to her sister than a loving caretaker.
1: We're back. And just before we get into the movies, let's talk a little bit about this subgenre that I am so fond of, hagsploitation. We were joking about that earlier, but let's talk about the origins of it and exactly what is a hagsploitation film. A precursor, if you think, to this type of subgenre was not a horror film at all, but Sunset Boulevard from 1950, Billy Wilder film. If you think of Norma Desmond, the faded Hollywood star that is aging and things aren't going so well for her, that is sort of, let's call that the seed from which hagsploitation grew uh, 12 years ago with a story written by Henry Farrell called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Again, aging star, things aren't going so well. But let's add a little twist to it. Let's add some horrific thriller-type elements. Probably the the most decent name for this subgenre is Grand Dame Guignol. I have no idea if I pronounced any of those words correctly. Uh, Grand has an E... Uh, and I said "Dom" instead of "Dame," and then "Gwynnial." I can never pronounce the French. I think that's word. correct. That sounds okay. so fancy. Okay. Anyway, I will not say that again. Just elevator. But that's our a, that's a like a, a nice name for this. And it, as we said earlier, kind of devolved into hag horror, psychobiddy, and then hag exploitation. I like hag exploitation because there's other, you know, black exploitation. Exploitation is just a good bunch of letters to slap on the end of, uh, of a description <laughs> so wh- what is a hag exploitation film well it, it takes those those characters older women and usually in a hag exploitation film these happen to be psychotic women not always sometimes it's the women themselves and sometimes it is people trying to harm these older women uh, more times than not these are women that had achieved some level of success or notoriety in the past and their star has faded. Also, if the celebrity portion is out of it, there is still usually an event in the past that haunts them that they have not gotten over for years and years and well not even years, decades. Really, these things that they have held on to or they have put deep in their consciousness come back out decades later to haunt them. A couple of other characteristics in some of this sometimes it's not just one elderly woman it's two and they're pitted against each other such as in whatever happened to baby jane there's bitter hatreds jealousies rivalries all of these things that have sort of been percolating under the surface sometimes they're relatives in baby jane they're sisters and then some of the deeper themes if you're thinking about it they really emphasize how unglamorous aging is (laughs) all of these things really are going to be obvious in baby jane and that was really the first movie. We'll talk later about others that came after it, but all of these things you'll find in Baby Jane, and then to some degree or another, these same characteristics would be in other hag-exploitation films. They're often over-the-top, often grotesque, exaggerated fashions or settings, and sometimes they're just, you know, they're really just pining for what was lost in their youth, the glory that they used to have. They don't handle it well later when they are entering the twilight of their lives. So that's, in general, what uh, an hagsploitation film is. Now, on the behind-the-scenes, this was very, very successful for Betty Davis and Joan Crawford because there are parallels. I mean, they their star was fading uh, themselves as actresses. Uh, they were still very talented. They still made some good movies, but their glory days of Oscar nominations, in general, I mean... There were nominations for this. But in general, um, they were past their prime. And usually, people past their prime don't get jobs. That's when you see them going into horror movies or you see them moving to television. This subgenre provided at least... And we were talking about how it's relatively short, 10 to 12 years. But this, those 10 to 12 years provided numerous job opportunities for these aging stars. Crawford and Betty Davis... Shelley Winters, we'll talk about these as we talk about these movies. On a personal note, I am particularly fond of these movies. I don't really know why. They just kind of strike a chord with me. And that is why I've been, for quite a while, itching to do an episode about them. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. Did you learn anything of the history that you'd want to add before we start, Richard?
2: Um, No, I mean, everything you're saying is, is spot on i i know that these are all first time viewings for me believe it or not i thought that i had maybe had seen bits and pieces of whatever happened to baby jane but honestly i didn't remember anything about it now i do think many many years ago that i did see hush hush sweet charlotte but we didn't cover that and i you know it when i would sit down and watch that at some point which i do want to I may find that I've never seen that either. So this is a genre that I've never really been drawn to. But I had some pleasant surprises. I was, I definitely was interested in diving into it. Anytime I can experience some films for the first time, I, I'm interested in learning some information about a, a different genre. And there were some highs and lows over the, the course of the, well, four films that I watched. And as we dive into them, we, we talk about that. But, you know, definitely surprised that the genre only lasted a decade but thinking about what was happening in in movies in the 70s by the time you get to the mid 70s i mean these were these are horror films suspense thrillers obviously thing the movie industry was changing a little bit with the arrival of like the exorcist and texas chainsaw massacre and stuff and so these movies were kind of quaint because you've got older actresses and probably really wasn't what movie going audiences were really looking for at that point they were looking for a little bit more blood and guts and do you really want to see betty davis or joan crawford going around slashing somebody up probably not and so that's probably why maybe it, it only lasted about a decade because then you're you're entering a period of time where horror fans taste in films were were changing and this was Kind of a again, kind of a bizarre, quirky little genre that was perfect for the time period of the 60s and early 70s. Uh, and I just, I'm not surprised when I think about it, I guess I'm really not surprised that it died out as we're getting into the, the changing in the mid 70s of horror films.
1: Yeah, I told Richard earlier that the I mean, it was definitely concentrated in this 10 to 12 years, but I, I didn't take the time or I'm not smart enough to come up with it off the top of my head. I'm sure there are elements of these that have reoccurred between then and now. But I'm wondering right now, I'm thinking for the first time, I don't know that there could ever be a concentration of films like this ever again, because we will never in history have that golden age of Hollywood where a star was a star, and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and... For them, then to age and sort of phase out, and then by then you're in a new period of Hollywood history, and I don't know that newer generations have
2: that type of iconic movie star. No, I mean you've got you've got the same thing plagues you know actresses. You know they reach a certain age, and Hollywood's not interested in them, and they start giving them different type roles and more motherly or grandmotherly roles to play, and you do have uh you know i'm thinking of the marvel movies there's certain actors and actresses who are getting to star in mainstream films that they haven't for a while it's just you know what renee russo who played thor's mother not a huge role but when was the last time she was in a in an a-list you know big grand epic probably 15 years maybe longer the same thing even for an actor like michael douglas getting in the ant-man films i mean he hadn't been main eventing films for a while. So you're right. We don't have those those grand actresses like we used to. There are actresses who become the the thing of the moment, but they don't stick around very long. I'm thinking for a couple of years when the Hunger Games were out, everyone was talking about Jennifer Lawrence, and when was the last time she had a movie? That was a big hit. She's had a couple of flops that were in there. She's a young actress. She got you know an award, but everyone's attention span is so short these days and they're on to the next big thing, next big thing. You're not going to have the grand old Hollywood anymore. You're not going to have the Betty Davises and Joan Crawford. So this this genre was dealing with, and you think of the actresses like a Geraldine Page or a Debbie Reynolds or these were actresses that were starting to get a little older and this was an opportunity for them to headline a film again that they didn't really have. After this genre was over with, I'm thinking, yes, Betty Davis continued to work. Joan Crawford really didn't, but Betty Davis's film roles were far and few between. Yeah, this this was a unique time, and and not one that we could. I just don't think we could replicate.
1: Yeah, and so I'm thinking today, who do we have of that caliber? So like Meryl Streep, maybe Nicole Kidman, uh, and these women it's different there are opportunities now that they didn't have then i mean you give meryl streep a bit part in a big budget fantasy movie and that's like really cool and that's like enough to satisfy everyone it's not that meryl streep needs to be the star of a movie where she's playing an old woman i mean it's yeah television is not what it used to be it's not such a an embarrassment to go to tv i mean with hbo
2: netflix netflix
1: you know they're doing good things so i i yeah, I just, that, that's another aspect I just thought of that there, you know, back then there's probably two things. You either do movies, TV, and the alternative is you fade away. Now, there's all
2: kinds of things. You could do the stage, you know, some, some people did fluctuate back and forth on stage, but even then, if you weren't doing Broadway, you know, then you're you're doing uh, the Hoboken Dinner Theater, you know, which a lot of actors and actresses did. You know, we look at their IMDB, and it's like, well, gosh, they stopped making movies in a particular year. Well, they still worked, but they were working kind of outside the system. They were working off-Broadway. They were doing dinner theaters here or there, oftentimes enjoying it. You know, other times just trying to make a living. Like Mickey Rooney is an actor who quit making big movies, but he did a ton of dinner theater and, you know, gave it his all, and people enjoyed when he was there, but your options are, are still few. Ones. And, and, again, thinking like Joan Crawford, right? She was a star, and you have that taken away, and that's hard for some people to adjust to. And Joan Crawford never did adjust to it. And But, you know, there's other actors and actresses just like that, that they're fine when the, the roles stop, but then there's others who are like, no, I was a star, damn it, and I want to be... A main you know I wanna be that that you know big movie again, and the opportunities are more plentiful now to to continue to work and make a movie that will get at least recognized back in the sixties, yeah, your options were very very limited, and t v was not really looked you know i mean if you were doing t v work you were slumming nowadays, not so much, you know, and sometimes you're getting paid. Just as much doing a television show as you were or, you know, a a Netflix original than you were making movies. In some cases, more. As viewing habits change, opportunities change for actors and actresses as well.
1: Well, let's dig into whatever happened to Baby Jane, the definitive exploitation movie. Huge hit. Released on Halloween, October 31st, 1962. It recouped its budget in 11 days and was one of 1962's biggest hit movies. It got five Academy Award nominations, Betty Davis, Victor Buono, the cinematography, the costume design, and the sound. It won one costume design. And that's really, to me, 50% of an award, because back then they had costume design for a black and white movie versus costume design for yeah. a color movie. yeah. So, this is in black and white. By
2: the Betty way. Davis did amazing. Do we know who won 1962? She lost out to? Uh, I don't. Okay. I mean, it, she did amazing in it. I mean, clearly over the top at times. But yeah, for an actress of her caliber to come back and do something like this and enjoy it, I mean, she embraced the role. And, like, for example, her makeup. She did her own makeup. She wanted to look pasty, she wanted to look that way how many actresses are going to be willing to do that she just went into the part full gusto Joan Crawford on the flip side did not want you know the gory makeup or not gory but the gaudy makeup so she was you know Joan Crawford definitely was was very much about retaining her beauty and her youth and I found a funny little anecdote about Joan Crawford's bra she apparently... Oh, please, go she, on. She had, of course, you know, back then, it's like she she had, you, know, you had like, you know, I don't know. Richard, ba- people can't see you. You're going to have to use your words. Uh, <laughs> battle armor, basically. You know, she, she had the, the pointy bras of the day that kept her uplifted and looking youthful. And I didn't notice it at the time. I really am curious now to go back, but apparently when she was on the beach and laying down, betty davis made comments about the fact that joan crawford was still standing at attention and that when she like landed on top of her in one scene she said it nearly knocked the wind out of her because she said they were like hard as a rock joan crawford was very much about maintaining that appearance and she's supposed to be kind of dehydrated and emaciated and and she did look a little worse for where I have a feeling that if the roles would have been reversed, I mean, Betty Davis probably would have made herself look like near death, which I've just, I just—I think that's just kind of telling of the difference in personalities and the rivalry that existed between the two. Yeah, so let's pause there because I'm sure
1: we're going to talk about that. Uh, you mentioned this was, as far as you remember, a first time viewing. A couple things. I've seen this many, many, many times, and it it's a long movie. It's two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. I've mentioned this before. I have some type of hang-up with long movies, no matter how wonderful they are. The Birds is another example. I, I love them. Every time I watch them, I think they're fantastic, but they're not like on my go-to list just because I know it's going to be such a big time commitment. I struggled. I wasn't in really the mood to watch Baby Jane, I'll be honest. So what I decided to do was watch it with the commentary. I thought, oh, I'll get all kinds of interesting facts. Well not really a, some commentaries are good and they give you the facts some aren't this one was not particularly good I, i'll talk about that in a minute but my point is this is a movie that has a very big well-known backstage shenanigans antics the rivalry between betty davis and and joan crawford i really uh, you may have some stories you want to tell i didn't really focus on that part of it i guess what i'm saying is there is a lot you could read about this movie and all of that behind the scenes stuff very interesting stuff i mean all i can really to summarize that is that i mean it worked that rivalry if they oh, had yeah. it i mean it 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 was perfect a perfect storm you know for this
2: movie to be as effective as it is i i really didn't focus too much on the rivalry either i there was the one story that you know that one about the bra and then another one that really kind of made me laugh there was... Joan Crawford was married to the chairman of Pepsi at this time, and Betty Davis, being the firecracker that she is, and just to kind of get at Joan, because Joan was making, I think, there was like some product placement in the movie. So, Betty Davis had a Coke machine installed on the set just to get at Joan, because of course it's Coke and Pepsi, the big rivalry. I just thought that was funny. I could just... Betty Davis has never been an actress that I've act, I've been drawn to, but I I've seen her in interviews and and she just spoke her mind and she didn't care, and you know she just and she's small little lady and got smaller as she got older, but she she always kind of packed a wallop in and, and when she was being interviewed or whatever, and uh, I just thought that was kind of funny. The, the I, I know, yeah, there's a lot we could go on that rivalry, but we won't go down that path. I agree. It, it enhanced the film because it, it, I think, probably brought out the best in both of them to kind of try to outdo the other, which was really what was... Joan's character of Blanche wasn't trying necessarily to outdo Baby Jane, but Baby Jane definitely was trying to outdo her sister. And and didn't want Blanche really to, to have any spotlight, even from the start of the film. This, you know, Blanche is watching an old movie, which I thought was a cool little twist. They actually played old movies from Betty Davis and John Crawford to enhance it. She's enjoying the movie. I'm, well, I really was good, wasn't I? And here comes the Baby. Ah, oh, you're watching one of your old movies again. <laughs> Let me turn the set off. You know, it's just I thought that was just hilarious. It's like betty davis did such an amazing job in this film um and joan crawford did good but this
1: was betty davis's movie yeah and, and betty she had the showier role i mean i'd argue that joan crawford did as good a job but it was just it wasn't as showy i mean
2: yeah she didn't have the funny lines. she didn't have the quirky stuff i mean yeah she was the more pitiful character yes um, and she did good at that yeah
1: i do want to well, i can't recommend it uh but there was an FX miniseries from Ryan Murphy called "Feud" that is about the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Uh, Jessica Lange played uh, Betty, Betty Crawford. Joan Crawford and Susan Sarandon played Betty Davis. I really, really, really want to see that. I don't know. Well, I do know why I never have it for a while. And it's been a while since I looked, but wasn't like readily available. It wasn't on Netflix. Maybe there's an FX streaming channel or something that it would <laughs> be on. But I, I think that would be a, a kick to see, especially. I, I know they recreate uh, a big part of it is recreation of the filming of whatever happened to Baby Jane.
2: And there was a remake of of the movie too many years later, I, which I I didn't find anything on. I didn't look for it. The movie clearly has has left an impression. It gets played with great frequency on Turner Classic Movies. And this is one, of, I think we talked about it in previous months. I don't know how many times this movie was on my DVR and then I would end up having to delete it because six months later I hadn't seen it and I needed the space. I'm glad that I finally had a chance to see this. And, and it came at the end of it, I'm like, why did it take me so long to to see it? Because I really did enjoy this. There, there was a lot to love about this. I think really even like the supporting characters, everyone did a really good job, specifically Victor Buono. As Edwin Flagg. He was, I loved his portrayal uh, or performance, and I think that for him to get an Academy Award nomination, I don't know who he was up against that, against that year, but he did a fantastic job, and he was only 24 when he did that, which really kind of boggled my mind. I thought, well, gosh, if he was only 24, and it's like, I just don't remember Victor Buono being in stuff for so long, that's because he died at a very young age. It was. I, I looked at, at, you know, of course, I knew that he did King Tut on Batman, obviously, and he does great in that. Uh, I knew he was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Did not remember him being in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And he did did lots of TV work, though. Night Gallery being one of them. He died in 1982 at the age of 43 of a heart attack. Hmm. And, And I thought that was just kind of sad. I was like, wow, that's very young. And that's been so long ago, you know, almost, what, 30 years ago now. So, well... Forty years ago now, I guess we'll be closing on forty years. Yeah, closing on forty years. So, yeah, kind of sad that that it's been that long. You know, he did such a good job playing the quirky Edwin Flag. I, I, you know, he he's brought in Baby Jane. Of course, is wanting to revive her career, and she's bringing him in as the as the pianist. And you know, he's he's obviously he knows that this isn't just a normal situation. But pay me. And you know what? I'll look the other way kind of thing, which is pretty much his take until, you know, the the final act of the film when he realizes that too much is, is too much. A question for you, and I guess we're going to skip around here, but talking about his character, do you think, did he ever really go to the police or because he stopped off at a liquor store? And my thought is, like, you know, later on, of course, you know, they, they talk about the police are looking for them. They they found the body of the, the, of the housekeeper or whatever. I'm like, they don't really explain about how they found that. Did he make the phone call or did he just decide to buy a bottle of booze and call it good? He was terrified. I could see him not having the intestinal fortitude to make the phone call and just... I'm gonna buy a bottle of Ripple and call it good. and Just forget the whole thing. Yeah, I don't think he called the police.
1: That he was too who knows what shady things he was involved in. He would have been exposing himself to.
2: He seemed that way. His character was, I, and I would think about. If they did a, uh, a a remake today. They would probably make him some type of really shady. Dare I say, almost like a pedophile-like character. I could kind of see him being that type of role in a modern film yeah he was just a little off but such a good performance though through
1: the power of the internets i have learned that the best actress winner for the 1962 awards was Anne bancroft for the miracle worker Uh, that's a good movie yeah and then uh the best supporting actor was ed begley a sweet bird of youth Which I
2: believe that movie popped up. Someone that we're talking about in these films actually was in that film. Was it Geraldine Page? Perhaps. I'm looking through my notes. This is wonderful podcasting. Mm. Yes, she was in that movie, Ah. interestingly enough, and she's in our next film we'll be talking about. I've never seen that movie, never even heard of it.
1: And I know it's not as glamorous, but I also want to look up who won Best Cinematography because the cinematography in Baby Jane is really quite spectacular. Especially the lighting and the shadows that they use in certain scenes, that was one thing that the commentators in uh, on the disc that I listened to were good at pointing out. Were the those lighting and those shadows and the angles better have been somebody mighty good that won? And uh, we'll come back to
2: that later because I'm not finding it uh, handily. So let's let's go back to the start of the film. The movie basically takes place in three different time periods: 1917. 1935 1962 baby jane was a horrific little brat as a child she's this child star who is just the father. and really it's it's not her fault it's the father's fault because baby jane's the cash cow she's making the family money and so they've just kind of fed into that and said okay baby jane gets whatever she wants it, it clearly establishes the relationship early on that, you know, baby Jane is, is a spoiled brat. Blanche is clearly jealous, but she's also being verbally abused by her father because when baby Jane wants to have ice cream and is going to get her ice cream and the father is like, well, Blanche wants ice cream too. No, father, I don't. And then he yells at her. And the mother, of course, was worthless. She was just very subservient to the husband and you get established very early on and then does give something away and and i guess maybe we'll talk about the spoilers later on but when you think about that first scene i couldn't remember how things played out but then in retrospect i think back is like they do kind of give it away because blanche at the beginning of the film you know yes mother i shall never forget Clearly, that comes into play later on in the film, and I because I'd never seen the film, I didn't see the twist coming. I, maybe I was just being oblivious to that, and I had forgotten about that opening scene. But I thought even the marketing machine was going in 1917. It's like get your baby Jane dolls out front, you know. And well, that's yeah, those creepy little dolls. And that. I wonder if any of those exist. That would be a cool. Cool. Well, thing they clearly to made them, but yeah. I mean, I don't know if they were like an existing doll and they just played it off as being a baby jane doll which might have been the case so the movie flash forward to 1935 big shock you know blanche is now a big hollywood actress she she was truly the one with talent you know as an older actress and as often the case the the childhood star you know doesn't be, she's not able to carry that success and doesn't have the acting chops And Baby Jane is, of course, under contract because her contract and Blanche's contract are tied together, which I thought was bizarre. Not sure that that was ever a thing in Hollywood, but maybe it was. And needless to say, the Hollywood studio wants to get rid of Baby Jane, but realize that they can't, and then leads into the accident, of course, that I guess someone said that if you freeze frame it now you can actually get the spoiler at the end of the film. Oh, really? You wouldn't have been able to really probably notice that back then, but apparently it does. There's just a split second that reveals who is actually driving the car, which then, of course, gives away to who gets out of the car and ends up getting run over by the car, which, of course, we're led to believe that it's Blanche throughout the whole movie was actually the one who who was intentionally hit and actually... no. That's not the way things played out, and I thought again maybe a twist that everyone saw coming, but I didn't see it coming. So yeah, I don't know if you see that
1: coming. I mean, I don't think you expect a twist. It's so yeah, I don't know. I yeah, to me, and I'm sure sure at that time. Well, although Psycho had just been out, I I don't know if the audience were expecting a twist. What, what do you think of the twist? How do you think it
2: affects? the movie and everything that came before that well it you know so throughout the whole movie y- you hate baby jane right she's just like i mean i kind of sort of feel sorry for her in a way but not really because like you're a spoiled little brat you're living off of your sister's wealth and and yes you know you're taking care of your sister but you know clearly you just like ah know baby jane's this horrible character but then i feel sorry for her at the end of the film because mm. Blanche got her revenge. Okay, I guess spoiler alert here. Well, you know, if you haven't seen this movie by now, I guess we're encouraging you to see it and we're just fast forward. Uh, But Blanche was actually the one driving the car, not the one who got out, and the accident actually caused her to have her legs damaged. She crawled. And of course, uh, Baby Jane fled the scene of the crime and was found three days later in a hotel. It was, you know, Blanche led everyone to believe that Baby Jane was the one driving the car, which then, of course, Baby Jane ends up taking care of Blanche her entire life because she felt responsible. And along the way, this the bitter feelings and the jealousy and all that kind of stuff just festered over the next thirty years or so. But ultimately, Blanche was the one who caused all of it and made baby jane regret it and it was her way of getting back i guess because of the torture that blanche had as a child which was that really baby jane's fault and it was the parents fault for allowing it to happen
1: yeah so it it makes you rethink everything that's happened and you know the case could be made blanche was the real monster not Not Jane
2: They both had issues that could have been Benefited by some good counseling
1: But the way that uh, Jane handles that news You know, she doesn't fly off the handle She's not mad It's it's in a way like Well, it sends her off the deep end forever Probably, But, but still it's
2: yeah, it's like a weight off her shoulders, Well, in the way. one line she also feels sad. It's like, no, we could have been friends all yeah. these years. Yeah. And so, again, that adds to the sympathy of, like, you you really hated Baby Jane the whole movie, and then you really genuinely feel sorry for her at the end because there's no animosity from her like you would expect. True, it sends her off the deep end, but that thought, it's like, we could have been friends. That really is the line that just makes you feel sorry for her so do you think that because i've read both ways and i wasn't sure how to take the ending of the film did blanche live or was she was she gone oh gosh i mean she was not in good shape she was in pretty bad shape yeah i don't know i tend to think
1: i tend to think she's gone
2: i mean that would be the kind of the sad ending right because blanche was gone and then baby jane mentally was gone and there was no coming back for baby jane at that point kind of a sad ending to the to the film tragedy certainly that you know with with the uh characters so this was based on a novel by henry farrell who also wrote how awful about alan have you seen that film i have i recently i was gonna say that's the one with anthony perkins anthony perkins yep. yes that's a film i've never seen but I'm, that pops up on some public domain sets sometimes Was that a television movie? It was. Okay, that's probably why it pops up then. So that's something I'd want to see at some point. Yeah,
1: it's all right.
2: Screenplay by Lucas Heller, directed by Robert Aldrich. And they obviously did a lot of work together because they worked again on Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, Flight of the Phoenix, which is one of my favorite films. Have you seen that one? The remake or the original? (laughs) Uh, The original, but... Uh, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen the original. Jimmy Stewart plays the the pilot in that one, the captain. Oh, yeah. it's been many years since I've seen it. I, it's a film I don't own, but I wish I did because that's one of my favorites. It used to pop up all the time on television. So and now I can't remember the last time I've, I've I've seen it anywhere. Uh, as well as the Dirty Dozen, which is another classic. Robert Aldrich, of course, also kind of was behind the start of this genre in a way, but I had also previously done a film noir classic, Kiss Me Deadly in the 1950s i guess we'll talk a little bit about the cast which i mean it's not a huge cast and really you've got three main stars of course we were talking about betty davis this she had made her film debut in 1931 uh had some classic films dark victory uh, all about eve this of course regenerated her career and she did several other Films that would be in the hack exploitation genre, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, but also a couple films for Hammer, uh, The Anniversary, and The Nanny, which I'm sure you've seen both of those. Yeah. Both of those are fun. Actually, I've
1: never seen The Anniversary.
2: Uh, that's, that's fun. The Nanny's my favorite of the two. The Anniversary, she basically plays the matriarch of a family. If I remember correctly, maybe like one of the family is bringing somebody home for dinner and things go horribly wrong. The Nanny, of course, is, I think, I love that one. That was a good one. In the 1970s, she did Madam Sin. Have you ever seen that one? Mm-mm. I bought that years ago on iTunes, and I've never watched it. It's mm. out there. So, Burn Offerings, um, didn't have a huge part. She was supporting actress in that, but that's a classic. I love that film. Watcher in the Woods, which is a Disney film. I don't know if that one's on Disney Plus it is or new. not. It will be, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they're adding everything to Disney Plus. She was in The Whales of August, uh, which I have not seen yet, but will in 2020 when we do uh, a Vincent Price month over at the blog. Her last film was Wicked Stepmother, which I read a little bit about that. She uh, left production of that film because of a disagreement, I guess, with Larry Cohen and her concerns of how that would affect her career. Ultimately, she only appears in 11 minutes of the film. Some of her lines were dubbed. She ended up dying eight months after the release of the film. She died in 1989 at the age of 81 of breast cancer. This movie, of course, certainly regenerated her career. And actually, I think she was quite busy uh, following this. So, yeah. and As well as the TV work as well. So, This also regenerated the career of Joan Crawford. She made her film debut in the silent era, she was actually in The Unknown with Lon Chaney Sr. Of course, she also did a few other films in the genre, Jacket and Berserk. She was in the 1969 Night Gallery film that kicked off the series. Uh, she was also in Trog, which I've never seen. Have you seen that one? Oh, yes, you've never seen Trog? I've never seen oh, Trog. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I, I should, because I, I know it's notoriously, well, notoriously should, bad. should, yes, yes,
1: but, you know, we don't... All, you know
2: i i will um, oh it's it, fun it's yeah fun. i i know what i'm going into for that one so her last uh role was actually in an episode of the sixth sense in 1972 so she probably pops up on night gallery because they've adapted a lot of those for night gallery um she died in 1977 at the age of 73 of a heart attack and probably became more infamous after her death from the movie uh what was it, mommy dearest mommy dearest. Yeah. Um, and of course, that portrayed her in a rather negative light. And I know over the years, there some people have said that that movie might have been not done her justice. That the that her daughter might have gone to the extremes. I know that Mommy Dearest opened the floodgates for everyone in Hollywood wanting to know anyone who had a quote bad experience, you know, with their parents. And one of Bing Crosby's children, after his death, released a book that portrayed Bing Crosby as, as abusive. And the other children, of course, came out and said, well, no, Dad was authoritative and you were a brat and you were, you know, combative with Dad. And so Dad would get angry. And But only one of his children really said that Bing Crosby was that way. Bing Crosby, yeah, he definitely had it was set in his ways and he had rules and regulations. He was not a very carefree father in that regards, but he was not abusive According to the other children, and actually, late years later, I forget which son it was, came out and said, Well, part he felt a lot of pressure from the publisher of the book because of Mommy Dearest and the success that it had to throw in a few things like that to help sell the book. I think Bing Crosby was exonerated years later, but for a while there, his legacy was tarnished a little bit as kind of a indirect result of of Joan Crawford's daughter. How much truth there was in Mommy Dearest or not, I don't know. That's kind of Joan Crawford's legacy, unfortunately. We talked about Victor Borno and I thought this was interesting about the promotion. Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, they were getting like a percentage of the profits, and so they wanted the film to be a success. Apparently Betty Davis traveled to 17 movie theaters across the state of New York in three days for personal appearances and did give away Baby Jane dolls. Yeah, so I forgot Ooh. about this. Yeah, actually, so they did exist in some form. Whether or not they were just a doll with Baby Jane on it or not, I don't know, but I wonder, you got to find one of those on eBay. I know, I've never seen one. I guess the way they did it is there was a lucky envelope underneath uh, the seat, so that, would, that was how you determined whether or not you got a Baby Jane doll to, to take home. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. So I really enjoyed the movie. Obviously, as you said, it's a classic. It's I think probably the best of the genre. Would you say definitely? I would highly recommend it. Not a film that I would necessarily. It's not a go-to film for me. It's not like uh, I want to sit down and watch Frankenstein or The Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's never going to be a film like that. But I wouldn't be opposed to uh, rewatching it at some point in the future. And and I'm glad I finally had a chance to sit down and, and check it out.
1: It's a movie that you can, I'm not like this way with very many movies, but this is truly one that you could watch, not all in one sitting, as far as the scenes go. There are some very big famous scenes, such as serving what's under the yes, yes, the, the food yes. dome thing that you, the silver dome thing that you take off that. Yes. There are some very well-known quotes from the movie, uh, scenes that are just iconic. I mean, it is a, a true classic. You didn't provide me the opportunity, Rich. I really wanted you to say something so that I could say, But you are, Richard. You are. <laughs> you didn't do it. Uh, the Longest Day won
2: Best Cinematography. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a big war epic. It stands the test of time. That, that's a war epic that still gets talked about. So Those damn war movies beat horror every single time. I <laughs> True. I was trying to find if this movie was available... I did find that you can get the DVD for less than $10. I don't think this has been released on Blu-ray in the States. I, I All I could find on Amazon was the all-region Blu-ray mm. from the UK, which would most likely work. But I was kind of surprised. Like, did, that did not... I mean, are you aware? Did it have
1: a... I am not. I've got a... Warner Brothers comes in a book. They put out some of their yeah. classic movies with, like, a the... When you open the cover, there's a book inside, yeah. or, and then the disc. I, I've never wanted tried to upgrade or anything. I've never thought about
2: it. Yeah, uh, as I was surprised, but I, I, Warner Brothers is weird that way too. I mean, they've got their archive. There are things that I wouldn't think would go in the archive that should be a regular release, but they didn't. Sometimes the big studios make odd decisions, and I was. If that's the case, I guess you can find the all region Blu-ray. You might pay a little bit more for it. What I watched was a high def copy off Turner Classic and really good pictures so uh, might be better than the dvd do some shopping around and if you know you're aware that this did get a blu-ray release let us know maybe i just couldn't find it amazon isn't always the best for that if for some reason it's out of print and it's not being sold through a third seller third-party seller sometimes those films don't pop up real quick i do want to just say i said
1: i wouldn't and i didn't but the commentary i listened to was by charles bush and john epperson John Epperson is the alter ego of Lipsinka, who is a big famous drag queen. This commentary was recorded in 2005, so I guess, even considering it's not such a great commentary as far as film history goes or anything, I guess I would someday like an upgrade. Don't know if it's worth saying or not, but big gay following of this movie. The campiness of it, the Betty Davis with the over-the-top performance and makeup and that's mostly what uh, this commentary is 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 two gay men ooing and aahing over the costumes <laughs> and the makeup and i could see that uh, though yeah yeah, yeah. So, anyway it's fun the version i have anything else on on baby jane no
2: all uh, right must see though it is a classic so we're gonna flash forward seven years to 1969 and we're gonna find out whatever happened to aunt alice all these women are keep disappearing what's going on with them
0: as difficult as you think (laughs) it's not very perceptive of you to minimize the courage that it takes to kill why it's just nerve with a dash of cruelty Geraldine Page, Ruth Gordon, whatever happened to Aunt Alice?
2: Where is she? What a fraud you are! I don't care
0: what you believe Geraldine Page is Mrs. Maribel, Ruth Gordon is Mrs. Dimmock. One of them is a sweet little old lady. The other is a homicidal maniac. One of them is Aunt Alice. Was Aunt Alice the killer? Or the victim? Or both? to Aunt Alice is more terrifying than what happened to baby Jane.
2: When her husband dies and she learns he wasn't as solvent as she assumed, Claire Maribel moves into her nephew's guest house in Arizona with a peculiar hobby, hiring elderly female housekeepers, conning them out of their money, then murdering them and burying their bodies in her garden. She meets her match, though, with the arrival of Mrs. Dimmick, who apparently has secrets of her own.
1: We're back, and I just wanted to mention, we've mentioned a lot of them, but some of the other exploitation films and the actresses who were in them that came out between the time Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was a big hit, and then uh, the, the 70s when the genre subgenre kind of petered out. Two years later, Betty Davis made Dead Ringer. Um, have you ever seen that? You know, it's... that was
2: also on Turner Classic. Yeah. I wish I had recorded that, too. Yeah, uh, that that's a good movie. She plays
1: it, if I recall, a dual role in that. Straight Jacket from 1964 had Joan Crawford. And this becomes a uh, sort of a sub-sub-genre here because William Castle, who directed that, he directed at least two other of these exploitation movies And Robert Block, as a writer, wrote a couple of those uh, for William Castle So even within the subgenre, there became sort of a group of people That were sort of known for making them at one point in their career Lady in a Cage, 1964, had Olivia de Havilland Have you ever seen that? Yeah, that's, that's a good movie. Yeah, that's a good one I like that hush-hush sweet charlotte we mentioned 1964 so two years after baby jane joan crawford actually was supposed to be in that with betty davis but she bowed out and olivia de Havilland joined betty davis in that that is a good move. We should maybe maybe we'll do a sequel and do three more exploitations but that if we were that would be the what happened to baby jane of the sequels it's nearly no equal in quality i would be totally open to doing a yeah, sequel to this cool. so. okay everyone remember that Uh, The Nightwalker, 1965. Again, William Castle, Robert Block. This one had Barbara Stanwyck. I Saw What You Did, 1965. William Castle, Joan Crawford. Hammer got into the game. We mentioned earlier The Nanny and the Anniversary. We also had Die, Die, My Darling in 1965, which had a Tallulah bankhead.
2: I've not seen that. I've got it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I've
1: seen that. And then Berserk in '67 with Joan Crawford. I'm sure there are others... Those are just a few. That brings us up to 1968. But you know what I was really wondering, Richard? What was happening in 1969?
2: Well, you know, I have a list of things. (gasps) How convenient. Will you share it? I don't think we've done anything in 1969 before. I mean, some of these years we've done movies, and I, I have not been keeping a list of what years I've done. I should have done that, but... You know, sometimes we might repeat. Uh, I don't know that this was a repeat, though. So, 1969. Average monthly rent was $135. Man. that make you sick. Yeah. So, of course, July 20th, 1969, we landed on the moon, and Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. January 30th, the Beatles gave their final live performance on the roof of the Apple Records building in London. Of course, uh, a little music festival called Woodstock happened August 15th through the 18th. On September 26th, Abbey Road by the Beatles was released. That was their final studio album recorded together. Project Blue Book closed, confirming there was no such thing as UFOs. Take that for what that's worth. Mm -hmm. Of course, we had Vietnam War protests. The first troops began to withdraw from Vietnam. PBS television began broadcasting in 1969. We had the Stonewall Riots, the Manson Murders. 1969 was a very tumultuous year in the history of our country. It was also the year that Nixon became president. Musically, we had Sugar Sugar by the Archies, Aquarius by the Fifth Dimension, Honky Tonk Woman by the Rolling Stones, Dizzy by Tommy Rowe, One by Three Dog Night, and Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. Popular books of the day, The Godfather by Mario Puzo, the Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, and Dune Messiah by Frank Herbert. Top television shows: Laugh in, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Mayberry, R.F.D., Family Affair. Star Trek aired its <laughs> last episode on June third, nineteen sixty-nine. And over in the U.K., Patrick Troughton ended his run as the Second Doctor on Doctor Who. ...on June 21st, 1969. If you wondered how I was going to make that happen, there you go. In one fell swoop. Absolutely. Popular films, uh, we had The Love Bug, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, True Grit, Easy Rider, and popular horror films of the day, or maybe not so popular. We had Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, The Oblong Box, Night Gallery, Valley of Guanji, and this is the one we're probably pulling a stretch, but sento and dracula's treasure i had a movie i don't have and i would, actually that's on my list of ones that i do want to get eventually kind of towards the top so there we go that's what was happening in 1969 and we also what was happening in 1969 well apparently there were some problems with aunt alice <laughs> yes yes what did happen to her? What, what Whatever happened yes. to, 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 to Alice, uh, the subject of our next film.
1: Yes, so it was based on a novel called The Forbidden Garden, uh, written in 1962. Robert Aldrich purchased the rights. He ended up just producing that. no, not directing it. And, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane, whatever happened to Aunt Alice. There actually was going to be a third movie called Whatever Happened to Dear Elva. That never happened, but this was therefore potentially the second movie in sort of a loose trilogy it also did very well when it opened July 23rd 1969 it was number one at the box office Uh, that earned it a wider release on August 20th of 1969 didn't have the longevity or the um, reputation that that baby Jane earned but I have to tell you
2: first time viewing I liked this movie quite a lot as I was watching it, obviously the, the yeah you're you're not dealing with the star power of Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, but as I've been kind of letting it sink in and think about it, I actually enjoyed this one. My initial thoughts were I was like eh, okay, but then the more I thought about it, I actually really did enjoy this one. You mentioned Ursula uh, Curtis wrote the the uh, Forbidden Garden. or I, I, oh, don't know if I didn't say right. who wrote it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, um, she also wrote I Saw What You Did, huh. which of course, as you said, was a William Castle film. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, this movie, you know, and we joked about before we start recording. Ruth Gordon, of course, one of the stars in this film was, you know, was she ever a young lady? I looked at her film credits. She did some stuff in Hollywood, and then there's a long gap. Before she started doing films again, I don't. I didn't do enough research to find out what she was doing in between. I don't know if she quit acting. Was she doing dinner theater in Hoboken? I don't know. But in this film, she looks like I, I remember her looking. She always seems to be an older woman. Well, I mean, she was, really. I mean, Ruth Gordon, of course, around this same time period, did Rosemary's Baby. Um, and, of course... Early 70s, did Harold and Maude, which was highly successful. My first exposure to her was, of course, through the Clint Eastwood films, Every Which Way But Loose and Every Which Way You Can, where she played Ma in that one. And I haven't seen those films in probably 35 years. And, you know, I love Clint Eastwood. Those aren't, those are not on my list of Clint Eastwood movies to revisit. But she was one of the funnier parts of that film and i remember she had a lot of scenes with the orangutan clyde Clyde, yes (laughs) but she died in 1985 at the age of 88 of a stroke so she would have been well gosh what she would have been in 70s at this point right i'm doing trying to do my math i mean she would have been in 65 she would have been 68 so yeah she would she would have been in her 70s at this point oh when she made this yeah she was 73 so yeah so she looked pretty good i guess for 73 i mean all things considered the red wig threw me a little bit at the start of the film i'm like you know and then of course spoiler alert when the wig comes off and you're like okay well that looks a little more like the ruth gordon i was expecting to see yeah i love ruth gordon so yeah the wig thing i
1: want to mention that while you were there sorry to derail you but uh, so geraldine page was 45 at the time i think she looks older than that Ruth Gordon was seventy three. I can't really <laughs> say she looks younger than that, but there seems to be an attempt for that to be the case with the wig. However, the wig is a big plot point, so yes, I think that maybe it had nothing to do with her, you know, trying to make her look younger. Or Probably not. Like I
2: think it was yeah. more of a plot point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I enjoyed this one. You know, you've got the lead character of, of Mrs. Maribel or. Marable. Uh, No, Maribel. Played by uh, Geraldine Page. Kind of another case of of someone going off the deep end. She obviously had led a life of leisure, living off of her husband's wealth or presumed wealth. She didn't seem all that upset that he died because she had plans to live off the wealth. And when she finds out, well, you know what? Nope, not quite as wealthy as you thought. And her first thought, how am I going to live? Well, then the next scene you see... She's already living while well, we kind of do a flash forward, and she's already established this idea of bringing in housekeepers, stealing their money, and then burying them in her desert yard and planting a tree. So Richard. She- Yes, you promised me you'd help me plant that pine tree. I, I know we got to hurry up. It's starting to
1: smell. What do you know about Geraldine Page? I don't. I mean, the name is familiar, but I don't really know
2: her. Uh, I was looking at her her film credits. You know, I I probably have seen her in Hondo many many years ago. I'm familiar with the movie Trip to Bountiful, but uh, Trip to Bountiful, but I can't honestly say I've seen it. As we mentioned, she was in Sweet Bird of Youth. Honestly, ah, uh, you know. I I did not I'm not I've never heard of that movie I mean I'll, I'll admit it so maybe that's a travesty I'm just not familiar with it I, I can tell you she was born in Kirksville Missouri so hey. kind of close to home she died too at a, kind of a younger age she died in eighty seven at the age of sixty two of a heart attack I'm familiar with the name I feel like I I've I've heard about her but probably have heard about her more than seen her. And film so that's I I didn't really know much about her can't honestly say that I remember seeing her a lot Hmm. I will say though
1: that her performance is one of my favorite baby Jane excluded of all of these I just really liked her performance she's she's very good it's it's nasty and she's manipulative
2: and there's no redemption for her character at the end of the movie I mean as as we said with Baby Jane, all of a sudden you kind of feel sorry for. Her. Yeah, there's no redemption for. And, and you
1: know from the very beginning of the movie, she's at the her husband's funeral and she's looking at his body, and somebody walks up and says how sad or something, and she looks at her
2: and goes sad. Yeah, I, I just loved it. it. Yeah, she she's definitely there, there's she doesn't care. Yeah. She, she's like she's got plans to live off the wealth, and that doesn't work out, so she goes to Plan B which works out for a while until you know she basically does her way with the wrong woman and that's where we get mrs Dimick, played by ruth gordon and from the get-go there's a little something about her because of course she you hear her voice as a, someone is looking at the a, a, the property right next to uh, mrs Maribel's, and that's the voice of the character of mike Played by Robert Fuller who I was very familiar with Robert Fuller because back in the day I think I probably saw every episode of emergency he played dr. Kelly Brackett on that he also played a show I never did watch but he played the character of Jess Harper on Laramie quite a few episodes of that and then, of course I do remember him from playing the character of Cooper Smith on wagon train which I used to watch back in the day and he pops up as guest on, on a lot of television shows I recognized his voice right away. We would soon find out that Mike and Mrs. Demick are in fact related because that's where Aunt Alice comes from. So I'll say now that this movie's a little unusual.
1: It's uh, there are certain times when I wasn't really sure what was going on like the transition of her husband dying and finding out she's penniless and then all of a sudden she's Living, they don't really explain. I mean, they oh, mention, it's a
2: ti- it's a big jump, yeah. yeah.
1: And and the the whole movie's kind of a little confused, not confusing, Off but it, yeah, it yeah. is. It's not uh, it's not a it, it is a straight narrative, but they didn't like don't give you all the details. And I think that consistently makes you just feel like unsettled. You know, there's something going on. We don't quite, even though we see. You know, there's still more going on that we're we may not be privy to. It's. Well, uh, and I wondered
2: about this because when I found out about that there was a change in direction, Bernard... <laughs> Bernard Girard was the director for the first four weeks of filming. Oh. I don't know why he left, but he was replaced by Lee Katzen, who then finished out the film. And I wondered if if maybe that disjointed feel was related to the, the change of, of directors and maybe moving the film in a different direction, taking the footage they already had. Maybe that explained, why we're just going to, you know, we don't have so many, only have so many days of production left. Let's change things up or something. I don't know. Maybe that was, I couldn't find anything to support that. Just a theory of mine. But oftentimes when you've got a change of directors like that, you end up with a film that's a little disjointed. Classic case being the 96 version of Island of Dr. Moreau. That's a more than classic case, but it's it happens on other films too, and you've got to change a director midstream like that. And I would think four weeks into filming had to be close to midstream, I would think. then you've got two different visions. that might possibly be why the film is is a little
1: off kilter. and it's not technically, I wouldn't call it a mystery, but it there are elements of it that play out like a mystery. Like I didn't know why in the world was she sticking blank postcards in the mailbox. You know they don't really explain that before the fact they do eventually yeah but that's just one of those like how odd you know what what does that have to do with anything
2: yeah very very true so you've got the 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 subplot which i kept trying to figure out why are we going this whole route of, of mike and and dating or wooing the character of harriet vaughn played by rosemary Forsythe, the girl living next door who has a son, and of course there's the dog, and so I watched this movie, I, I have to say, because we often joke about this is this a Carla movie? No, these were not Carla Ooh. movies, but the scene where the dog wanders over, I immediately thought, oh no, no <laughs> I immediately thought, this is most definitively not a Carla movie, thankfully you know, the thankfully
1: dog... Geraldine Page is not a very good uh, on target with her no, facts. no, she was not <laughs> she was
2: horrible at it and that plays a part, though, in the in later on in the movie, the dog ends up saving the life of Harriet and her son. And had Geraldine Page been successful, well, then, you know, things would have turned out rather differently. Because, of course, as we get to the final act of the film and and Mrs. Mirabel is clearly unhinged at this point, and it just... Things are spiraling out of control, and the bodies are piling up. And she's trying to cover her track, and she's just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. That dog actually plays a key role, so I thought that was kind of interesting. I kept trying to figure what are they going with this? And it just didn't seem to—I couldn't understand entirely. Maybe I was missed something early on. It's like, but then of course I understood that he's—you know—obviously this relationship just kind of happens, but it's also. Part of his keeping an eye on on his aunt and I, Rosemary foresight is a name that sounded familiar to me, but then as I'm looking at the credits, nothing seemed to stand out. She was in City Beneath the Sea, which is a movie that I think I may have but have never seen. She did lots of TV work. She was on Dallas. You and I both fans mm-hmm. of Dallas. I can't remember the character she played. Hmm. Three episodes. She was in Ghosts of Mars as like the interrogator. I saw that movie earlier this year. Can't remember her character though. And then she was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager, another Star Trek reference episode called Scientific Method. I haven't seen Voyager in so many years. That's actually on the slate for 2020, so I'll run across that eventually. And I'll let you know when that happens and see if she played a big role. By that point, I can't imagine that would have been the 90s. And so we're looking at probably 30 years later, she would have been older. can't really recall the character that she played. Here's uh,
1: something else that, again, not confused me. That's too strong a word. But it's, you know, the movie is... Whatever happened to Aunt Alice? Okay. Aunt Alice doesn't come to the movie till... You know, not as far as halfway, but kind of late in the movie. And I, I, I was at one point, who the heck is Aunt Alice? And this is so interesting. Did you know everyone in this movie is either somebody's niece or nephew or aunt or uncle? It got
2: confusing a little it, bit, and, and, yeah. And, and
1: so they call Maribel Aunt Claire... They say her name a lot, and that every time they said an aunt or an uncle, I was like, well, who's Aunt Alice? Well, it, it's Ruth Gordon, but of course they don't really call her that because it's Mrs. Dimmick. But then, that's sort of key to the whole thing. That reveals what's it really reveals, happening yeah. when he, she is
2: called Aunt Alice for the first time. You know her relationship to Mike. Yeah, it, it, it got a little confusing. I was trying to figure out where everything was kind of fitting in. And I don't know. Now, you know, the screenplay was by a, a Theodore Apstein... Didn't do a lot of film work. He did lots of TV work. He did an episode of the Time Tunnel. He did do the movie Baffled in 1972, which starred Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek. Another Star Trek reference. Mm-hmm. Again, I wonder—is like, was it the screenplay's fault, of the disjointedness, or was it you know the change in direction? It didn't necessarily. At the end, of, I mean, maybe that was probably my initial reaction was I was trying to feel like oh, the movie's a little disjointed. But then the more I thought about it, I did enjoy the movie. So, But my initial reaction was I was, I won't say confused. I was just trying to... It's one of those movies I had to let it sink in yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's odd. It doesn't unfold
1: at the normal, you know, the, what we're used to with most narrative stories. It's just slightly off kilter, I would say.
2: Speaking of the direction, again, Liz Lee Katzen did not do a lot of film work either. Lots of TV work, branded Rat Patrol, Mission Impossible, Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. So you're dealing with with people writing the screenplay and, and directing the film that are more used to episodic television. Oftentimes, you can't you can't take that leap to doing a film because there's there's different ways to direct a a weekly episode of a of a television series as opposed to a theatrical film, and maybe that played a part into Why this film seemed to kind of again not be really all over the place, but just kind of seemed to take a few leaps here and there, and you kind of had to scratch your head: Did I miss something? You know, was there something edited out? Was they were they running out of time? The movie has a normal film length, so it just makes you wonder the, the overall production. And I couldn't find much on the production aspect of it, but. Once I let the film sink in, I did enjoy it. Geraldine Page's performance was over the top and great, and I loved Ruth Gordon and those two the battle of wits that ensues between those two is a little different than we got in Baby Jane because of course Blanche couldn't really defend herself that much but you know mrs. Dimmick could you know she it play a it, to a certain extent there was a bit of a uh, battle of wits, and then the, when it came down to the physical aspect, you know, you're pushing the wheelchair. I loved and, that scene. I yeah, loved that, it. That, that's when, a fun uh, scene. Yeah. So, uh,
1: and I forget why is Claire in a wheelchair? She, well, and that was
2: a, an, uh, you know, I get th- that you had that cool scene pushing the wheelchair, but I didn't understand why she hurt her foot or something. Yeah. And I wondered, was that Geraldine Page? Did she hurt herself during production? Mm. And they put that in or otherwise why did they put that in because it really doesn't play into any other part of the movie other than pushing the wheelchair and so if that's your whole point of doing that you could have done that with something else i i don't know that was weird i again i I want to know more about the production of this film i have questions and i couldn't find the answer to that so
1: yeah so mrs demick pushes the wheelchair and it knocks down Geraldine Page, and then uh, they struggle, they fall, their heads go inside the fireplace. She grabs the phone, tries to choke her with the phone cord. It was pretty intense. I, it was. It <laughs> knocks her on the head with the receiver. I mean, it it was well done. It was suspenseful. I mean,
2: I was. And I think it was it was very much how you would expect these two uh, older women to have a cat fight, right? I mean, it's essentially they're 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 fighting for their lives at that point, and it plays out. Kind of weird, kind of clunky, but realistic at the same yeah. time. So. Yeah, uh,
1: You know, for my cat fights, I really I don't prefer young, beautiful women. I'd rather have Ruth Gordon and Geraldine Page any day. <laughs> I never anticipated <laughs> Ruth Gordon in a, in a, cat, in a cat fight. Cat fight.
2: <laughs> now that I saw it, it made me laugh. I wish I would have known this quote when that scene came up because now I saw saw this quote when I was doing research. I thought, oh my gosh, that that's there's got to be a meme or something. A critic. Called Ruth Gordon wearing a red ri- wearing the red wig as quote a crazy animated peanut <laughs> and so now I, I immediately I went to that scene right I was like oh my god there's the little peanut you know having the battle and, and yeah that's a crazy quote and I loved it yeah so. that's
1: great I wouldn't really say this has a twist ending but it has a little zinger do you know what I'm talking about yeah yeah
2: it's not I
1: loved that the it's-
2: twist would have been if. Spoiler alert, if Mrs. Dimmick had survived, which I kind of thought they were going towards for a mm-hmm. second. I was like, you know, oh, they, they saved her at the last minute, but ultimately, no, unfortunately. So, yeah, there's not a twist. You got that, that zinger. Yeah, and
1: I love that because at the beginning, that's something I thought. You know, she's just throwing away these few measly possessions that her husband left, and I'm like, uh, you don't, you really shouldn't throw away a stamp collection. I guess you, there you,
2: was a twist in, in regards to the stamp collection. Oh, okay. Yes. I guess you can sit there because you didn't really think that, right? I mean, although I see what you're saying. You're like, you're just randomly, th- but I didn't think that the stamp collection would come back into play and then ultimately no no you didn't have to do all these murders. you had your fortune right there and the thing you thought was silly yeah yeah so what was the twist you were talking about just that well that's what i'm talking about the the twist of the of the stamp collection Uh, that was a twist in a way because you know but then then you got the little yeah the the zinger at the end where you know and you know again are our, our main villain of the piece doesn't fare too well at the end of this film I mean she 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 kind of goes off the deep end I don't see a return for her and she's probably gonna spend the rest of her days in a home probably not going to jail because she's not of sound mind you know killers always make a mistake and you know I guess if if you know you got to watch these movies and okay i I shouldn't plant anything in the backyard that never never ends up. Being the foolproof method, you know, there's a, a um, oh, uh, I can't remember the name of the classic radio play, Back for Christmas, I think is what it is, and it's been done a, a, numerous times on radio, an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, where a husband, hand husband, comes up with the perfect way to, to get rid of his wife, long story short, they're going to go away for the holidays. And he's going to end up killing his wife before they go away of the holidays and bury her in the basement. And he thinks he's got her, her dead and buried and they have a dirt floor in the basement. He's got this wine cellar. Well, the wife, who clearly, you know, was was hand him, ends up paying for somebody while they're going to be gone for Christmas. To dig up the basement and put in a concrete floor, <laughs> and so therefore the perfect crime is is ends up being you know and that's the final thing is it back for Christmas and well yep you're going to be back for Christmas and then you're going to go to jail because they're going to find the body. I kind of I thought of that when she was doing this. It's like that it never ends well. It's not the surefire way to to get rid of the body because somebody's going to find it. Maybe the dog. You thought maybe that's where the dog was was clearly going. Nope, it ended up being. A little different, but played out the same. Yeah. Anything else to say about it? <laughs> you know, it's available on Kino Lorber Blu-ray for a reasonably cheap price, and Kino Lorber's always doing sales, so uh, I would recommend this one. Yeah, this this was definitely a fun flick. I would definitely watch this one again. Yeah, me too.
1: All right, well, we know what uh, ever happened to Baby Jane and Aunt Alice. When we come back, we'll find out who slew Annie Roux
0: a lullaby become an unbelievable horror. You know, there was once a little girl very like you who lived
2: in this house. What happened to her?
0: You've got Katie locked in the nursery, haven't you? Haven't you? You better remember and you had better understand that if you try anything, if you try anything, I've got her. Mm. fearful illusion end and frightful reality begin? (laughs) What terrors lay waiting in winding corridors and shadowed corners? What devil stalks the darkness? Whoever slew Auntie slew Auntie
2: <laughs> For the staff and children of an orphanage Mrs. Rosie Forrest otherwise known as Auntie Rue is a kind and loving widow who throws a lavish Christmas party for them every year but for an orphan brother and sister Christopher and Katie Coombs she's a demented woman who holds them prisoner against their will
1: we are back with our third movie whoever slew Auntie Rue or who slew Auntie Rue did you find out any reason of why there are two names for it I thought at first it was like a British American thing but I
2: No, I, I, mean, I was confused by that as well I, I'm not sure why the, the title changed. okay
1: like whatever happened to baby jane i have seen this many many times it's a much lighter faster going movie it's something i look forward to watching more often we talked earlier about how sometimes i forget how good baby jane is since i had seen it so often i also listened to the commentary on this it was by david delvall and nathaniel bell and it was a curtis harrington love fest basically he was the director of this movie and he's we've probably talked about him before he's done a a lot of of horror movies he apparently was a very good at working with these older actresses who could sometimes be difficult and i i bet you you've got a story on that with shelly winters but he was very good with these actresses and so he made you know, several movies not only horror thriller but with some of these um, older actresses it's a better commentary than baby jane i did actually learn some things about the movie but uh still not not a a, a, doc, a um, commentary that i particularly recommend a couple things i did learn is that it had several different names uh, first of all it started out christmas at grandma's and then the gingerbread house, and then they wanted to, and they actually said they wanted to Henry Farrellize it by turning it into, you know, a short conversational title with a question mark at the end. So that was obviously this being the end of the hack exploitation subgenre, echoing back to the beginning with whatever happened to Baby Jane. Interesting. This also had some turnover behind the screen, behind the scenes, like you said. Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice had. In this case, it was the writers. There were several writers. Uh, an original screenplay was written. And then the next draft was done by Jimmy Sangster, famous hammer writer uh, who was there in the glory days with all the, the cursive Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, all of those wonderful hammer films. But then that was updated again. And then there was a final draft. And they considered that this final draft was made it more elegant a story. Um, <laughs> that's
2: arguable. I don't know if you can say that. Elegant? I'm not sure I <laughs> yes. would, I would well, I would put the word elegant on an anti-hero. So. Yes.
1: So, uh, that's just a little history of it. Anything you've got before we dig into the movie itself?
2: No, I mean, we talk a little about the the different screenplay writers. You've got David Osborne who I'm not sure it sounds like he was maybe one of the more one of the first the only other big thing he did was a movie called Deadlier Than the Male, which is a one of two films with the same character. It's been so many years, I can't really say much about it other than I have it. It's a 1960s James Bond wannabe. Robert Blee's did several genre films, Black Scorpion, Frogs, Dr. Fives, Rises Again. As you mentioned, Jimmy Sangster, you know, Hammer Legend. You don't need to really say much more about him. You mentioned Curtis Harrington. As well, doing a lot of genre films like Queen of Blood, Night Tide, and How Awful About Alan, and that movie pops up again. I kind of, you know, when we do these themes, sometimes it's interesting how they do really kind of intertwine at times, and some of the same titles or actors or actresses will pop up time and again. Uh, that's about all I had on 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 the director and writer.
1: Okay,
2: and first time viewing for you as well, right? This was I, I had heard the title obviously, and was always curious about it but now this is a first time viewing for me this is one of those movies i remember
1: seeing on the big screen when it first came out yes i'm old at the chief theater in enid oklahoma i distinctly remember a scene that scared the pants off of me at the time and it's not scary at all it's it's a jump scare at best but doesn't even make me jump and that's early in the movie and it's all it is is a quick edit to a new scene that begins with a uh, butcher, I guess, chopping the head off of a uh, chicken or a, or a goose, and it's just like this sudden, you know,
2: loud, abrupt noise. As a kid, scared me to death. <laughs> this, either one of the titles you mentioned, the the gingerbread house, I, like the ginger dead house. Yeah, I mainly went to. Yeah, it, you got a Hansel and Gretel feel to this yep. one, definitely, um, which. Is why I think of this one more of a, a, a definitely a kind of a quirky pseudo fairy tale like film. And but the question is though, so clearly Shelley Winter's character of Mrs. Forrest, she's not of sound mind. She witnessed her daughter fall off the stairwell, horrific. But the husband, the magician, never really explained what happened to him he just kind of like he's there in the flashback there's a reference to him but other than that did he leave did he die i guess it doesn't really matter she clearly has this house so the implication of maybe he died uh left her the house or maybe he just left after the death of the daughter i don't know okay so the big question though is was she really going to do something to the kids was she really the evil character that as she granted she's she's disturbed but was it more tragic? I mean she was trying to get over the death of her daughter. Okay. She's keeping the body of her daughter up in a bedroom, a secret bedroom I guess. That's disturbing, tragic and sad at the same time. And clearly she she develops a fascination with young Katie Coombs played by Chloe Franks because kind of reminds her of her daughter in a way, gonna wants to replace her daughter. But Katie's brother, Christopher, played by Mark Lester, paints this picture that Auntie Rue is going to eat them and cook them and do all this stuff and leads to all this stuff, which makes you think, well, Shelley Winters really is disturbed. But then, was she really? Because there's that twist ending. I guess you call it a twist at the end where... Maybe she wasn't quite the villainous character that the movie plays out, that she was another tragedy, much along the lines of a baby Jane. It's like, was she really the bad person we thought she was? I don't know. I, I kind of like, at the end, I'm like, I kind of felt sorry for Auntie Rue Exactly,
1: again. and that's the whole crux of it. And I would submit, Richard, that this movie would belong in our uh, School Kids Gone Bad episode that we did. Oh, good, yeah. I could, believe yeah. that Mark Lester is... As, this is my opinion, you can make what you want from it. I think he's as twisted and demented as she is, and this movie is a battle of wills between the two. And I think you can make an argument that it's the kids, mostly him, that's the monster here. Well, and and Andy
2: Rue is a victim. You don't know about their past. The movie starts off, they're, they're not talking, uh, they're not really blending into the orphanage thing. You get the gist that maybe they were on the streets for a while because there's talk about not having food and he's got some concerns about, you know, wanting to make sure that they have food and they're taken care of. Later on, there's they're stealing diamonds and jewels and and hiding it in a bear and planning that they'll never starve again. But you really don't know anything else about their past. And clearly something's happened that again maybe left him scarred and twisted i would agree with your argument by the end of the film you know yeah it's like ah i don't know you know would have anti what you know maybe they just could have just played along with it and found a way to get away eventually yes i mean she kidnapped and that was not good but (laughs) kidnapping's not good kidnapping's not good But was she really going to eat them? Uh, No, she clearly wasn't. No, she wasn't going to eat them. I don't know. No, no. And she wasn't, I don't think she was going to necessarily hurt them. I think she was just disturbed and missed her daughter and was trying to replace the daughter and didn't necessarily care too much for Christopher. Well, Christopher didn't care too much for her. And then you're right. So it becomes a battle of wills between the two. And is Auntie Rue really the villain of the piece? I don't. I don't think so. I think he's more the villain. Bad kidnapping, not good. But it's in, not murder. No. And and clearly she's she's just a, a another kind of sad, tragic character who isn't quite as evil as as made out to be. She's not the wicked witch going to push Ansel and Gretel in the oven and cook them. Which is kind of the gist that you get until you get that twist of the film. It's like, no, she really wasn't going to do that.
1: Yeah, I don't think she even ever claims to. It's just the boy telling his sister that's, you know, what she's going to do. She's a witch. I do think, in my opinion, this makes a huge, huge misstep. And that's by showing in the very beginning, possibly even before the credits, that it's her, the body of her mummified daughter in her cradle upstairs. By showing that in the very first scene, is that not, you know, spoiling something that could have come later as a
2: twist? Oh absolutely, that could have been that could have been held till later in the movie. It would have been that would have been a better filmmaking. Yeah. yeah.
1: So that coupled with the fact that, you know, she's gonna die, it's the title of the movie, it's not real suspenseful. But that doesn't mean it's not entertaining. I I get a kick out of this movie
2: i do too i mean it's of the three it's my least favorite simply because i'm not a huge Shelley winters fan i was watching this movie through through a different perspective because i was looking for things in her performance we're going to talk a little bit about it. maybe this is the time to talk about it a brief sidestep i'm not going to talk too much about it but when we were trying to go over the movies that we were going to watch, and there was a little confusion because What's the Matter with Helen was one movie that I needed. You gave it to me to watch. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were watching, you know, Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice because we didn't want to do two Shelley Winters films. So I had seen What's the Matter with with Helen, and I do not like that film. I know you do, and well, we can talk about that briefly, but... The biggest problem I have with that movie is when I found out that Shelley Winters suffered a nervous breakdown during the course of the filming of that movie. And so I then I, I went into, well, where was this in production? So actually, What's the Matter with Helen was released after Auntie Rue. It was released in April of 72. Rue was released in March of 72. So technically, I guess, What's the Matter with Helen would be the end of the genre. Shelley Winters, while making this movie, I guess wasn't necessarily having a nervous breakdown yet but was on her way to for whatever reason and i couldn't really find out why other than she had a nervous breakdown during the making her performance in what's the matter with helen she she's off kilter and then i start thinking when i watched that and knew it well she's off kilter because she is clearly (laughs) struggling to the point that like debbie reynolds would pick her up on the way to the studio and one day she gets there to pick her up and Shelly Winters is out in her bathrobe wandering the streets in front of the house and they they continued to make the film and that bothered me as like stop production you've got yes your lead actress is clearly struggling you wouldn't do that today right and you mean they would they would stop production because you know, I guess different times and back then they just probably tried to hush hush and keep it quiet. I see that in the in that movie where Shelley Winters is playing a character who is unraveling before our eyes and in fact she's unraveling in reality. And I think that that taints my thoughts about, you know, what's the matter with Helen. And indirectly as I was watching this movie, I kept looking for those signs. It's like but I didn't see the same look on her face or the same portrayal. I didn't see the same Shelly Winters in this film, so clearly by the time she made, you know, Helen, she was suffering for whatever reason. She was having that nervous breakdown. I know you enjoyed Helen better than I did. I hated that the trailer gives away the big reveal. Well, you the know? movie poster gives it away. Well, yeah. Yeah, that that too. So gives away the big twist ending to that film. I like Debbie Reynolds. I struggled with her in that role. I don't think she meshed well with Shelley Winters in that movie. And the whole romance that Debbie Reynolds was having seemed very, very... for Dennis Weaver, of all people, is like... <laughs> I'm sorry. Dennis Weaver is not a romantic leading man in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, I, I just... I don't know. I, I just... Although I kind of joked with myself when I saw that, you know, and obviously... He sees a horrific scene. He sees the love of, of, of his life, you know, or at the moment anyway. Spoiler, brutally murdered. You know, then I thought, well, maybe that's why he took that cross-country trip in the desert that led to the to duel. And I was like, oh, now he's getting chased by, I don't know, I joked about that. I'm glad we didn't talk about What's the Matter with Helen because I, I would have gone on rants about that film. I did not like that movie whatsoever. That did taint my, my viewing of this because I kept looking for Shelley Winters' performance. I might appreciate this film more upon a second viewing. I didn't hate it, but to me, I just kept looking for things that weren't there. And so Shelly Winters, again, not being one of my favorite actresses. Also, her performance in this does not reach anywhere close to the levels of a Geraldine Page or a Joan Crawford or a Betty Davis. And so, it, it unfortunately, poor Auntie Rue takes a distant third of the three films okay so a lot to respond to there so first
1: I'll tell you what uh, uh, what's the matter with Helen I did like it and I can't really argue any of your points I think it's just a matter of I liked it and you didn't I knew going in what you thought of it and I kept looking for some horrible glaring thing that was going to make it horrible and it's a breezy quick movie and all of a sudden it was over and I'm like huh that wasn't bad. I wonder what Richard's talking about. Uh, so, I don't know, I enjoyed it. I uh, okay. I love Shelley Winters. And it's for the most ridiculous of reasons, The Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Her performance in that has just stuck with me all these many years and I'm sure that's why I like Annie Ruse so much and that's probably why
2: I like So What's I will Marichelle. say that's my favorite Shelley Winters performance in that and one of my least favorite is the Mar- ma parker role in batman that's a horrible batman episode so again doesn't really help my love for shelly winter so that yes. could explain too why your experience yes. with so helen what, was better so. what do you know about her the commentators and just
1: things i've known not very complimentary on the woman she was apparently a very petty selfish actress yes she was one of those that wanted her close up and she didn't want to
2: share the screen with other people which is always interesting because I never viewed Shelley Winters as a glamorous lead actress. I know she was in Night of the Hunter, which I saw so many years ago, I can't yeah. really remember it. But every other time I've seen her less than glamorous, I know that there was I don't I can't remember the actress on on this movie Auntie Rue, but there was somebody who was was getting rave reviews and Shelley Winters didn't want the the supporting actress to to get any Limelight, so she made sure that her role was cut down to virtually nothing. Yeah, I, I heard the same thing, too. Very, very petty. Also, I wasn't she kind of boozy? I mean, she, she kind of drank a lot and never, I mean, she just seemed like a problematic actress. Now, I also heard the commentators say,
1: and I would really like to read a biography of her. We talked earlier about things you don't do in Hollywood now that you used to do. I don't know the director. I don't know the movie. I don't know if it was a one-time thing or or uh, if it was a pattern. But she was apparently to the point of almost physically abused to get a performance out of her for a particular movie. Verbally abused her. I, I don't know what all they did to really push her to try to get a performance out of her. And supposedly she held that for many, many years. And that factors into why mm. she was so difficult to work with in essence it's a gross exaggeration i don't know all the details but it was sort of a monster they created yeah uh, I can see and that. that i to me that's i don't know there's something
2: sad about that you know yeah. i just i'd really like to know her story yeah that's true i i mean i didn't know that so you know, I mean, i think that that would you i can see that that would stick with you and then change you as an actress and make you more selfish and yeah i guess that's that's interesting i i you know i know that I've seen pictures of of, of of her, you know, when she was, you know, close to the end of her life. She was bloated. She was alcoholic. I was surprised to realize that she died in 2006, but she was 85. Oh, wow! I always thought she died younger, but she died at 85 of heart failure. And for some reason, I would have thought 62 of liver failure or something. But no, she did live to be 85. I mean she was born in 1920 in St. Louis, Missouri, so again, wow. another Missouri. There may be more to her story. Yeah, you brought up a good point.
1: It just I'll say another thing about the movie, it's uh there's several subplots that are presented that don't really go anywhere. The jewels and someone being there and the the uh Ralph Richardson, you know, conning her with a séance and all of this stuff that I don't really know what that has to do with anything. No, but it has a great scene right out of Scooby Doo when the kids are out in the shed and they're looking at all the magician stuff, and then that person in the mask comes out, yeah. and they run because they're scared, and then he takes the mask off. I don't know. They just remind me of Scooby Doo because the <laughs> monster is always just a guy in a yeah, mask. Yeah, yeah. You
2: know? So hey, it's fun. I it, 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 it's a it's a fun kind of a late night creature feature Saturday afternoon matinee type of film. It's not it's not A list entertainment but it's it's not horrible either i have a soft spot for it in my heart and again second viewing i might appreciate it more without looking at Shelley winter's performance with a fine tooth comb and like okay do i see anything no i didn't so i wouldn't be looking for that and so i would just maybe be soaking in the movie more for what it offers i did want to say that it's got some interesting cast though because mark lester had just done the lead role in oliver in 1968. Kind of an interesting case. You're doing Oliver, and just a few years later, you're slewing Auntie Rue. How quickly things change. (laughs) And then, of course, a few years after this, What the Peeper Saw. His career took a (laughs) sharp turn quickly. (laughs) Now, Chloe Franks, not a name I'm familiar with, but she did a lot of horror films around this period of time. She was in The House of the Drip Blood, Eye Monster, Tales from the Crypt, and The Uncanny. She kind of had a little horror thing going there. Now, Sir Ralph Richardson, oh my gosh, was he slumming in this film? Arguably, maybe. He was a a star in London's West End. He was knighted in 1947, considered a master of Shakespearean canon, and a totally non-related side note, I was the recipient of a stack of vintage albums, and I got a four out of a five box collection of Shakespeare. Now, I would never seek out Shakespeare records, but these are full cast recordings from the 1960s featuring Shakespearean actors, and thankfully there is like a dialogue book that you can follow along. A quirky little thing, but definitely a piece of history, I think, which is why I'm fascinated more than anything, and Sir Ralph Richardson is in more than one recording doing Shakespeare. And and so knowing now that he was considered one of the Shakespearean masters, I really do kind of look forward to to listening to those vintage recordings. He made his debut in 1933's The Ghoul with Boris Karloff. That's an interesting side cred. Uh, And he did some other horror films around this time. He was in Tales from the Crypt, Frankenstein, The True Story. He was also in Time Bandits in the 1980s. He was in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Eights. He died in 1983 at the age of 80 of a stroke. His presence in this film again doesn't really add to the plot at all. It adds a little moment where he could have potentially saved the kids and then just chose not to worry about it. So he kind of went took his alcohol and went home. But other than that doesn't really that that's a weird side plot that doesn't ultimately go anywhere. So yeah, the the movie again my, my least favorite of the three but Uh, It is not a horrible film. It's a lighthearted romp that I will probably revisit sometime in the future to see if I can appreciate it a little bit more without critiquing Shelley Winter's performance as much as I did. Mm -hmm. And it's available on Kino Lorber Blu-ray, so it's easily available for you to watch at your pleasure.
1: You know what else is available on Kino, Kino Lorber Home Video? I don't know. What else? come back after the break, and we'll find out. (laughs) And now!
0: (laughs) So you met someone, and now you know how it feels. Somebody cut me. Somebody out there cut me. Goody, goody. I wanted to see you bleed. I wanted to be sure you can. You'll bleed alright. So will the other one. Debbie Reynolds is Adele. Shelley Winters is Helen. What's the matter with Helen? Ah! Something the matter?
1: Ah! You okay, Helen? Helen? Animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits loop the loop. that man's dangerous. He may be just a harmless crack. Gosh, so cheap. What's the matter? What kind of a schoolboy
2: would do such a thing? Why pick on me?
0: Let's not be bothering the lady. Are you scared? Yes, of course I am. I'm scared as hell. I'm so sorry. I always seem to frighten you, don't I? Surprise entrances are one thing, Mr. Starr. Snooping is another. (laughs) How right you are. Adela, oh, please don't turn on the light. Helen? Yes. Do you wish me well? Of course I do, dear. Some people who call themselves well-wishers do crazy things. One cannot be too careful. What's the matter with Helen?
1: What's the matter with Helen? we're back and you are hanging on the cliff to know what is coming out from kino lorber studio classics in december well on december 3rd one of richard's favorites from 1961 conga will get its blu-ray release (laughs) should we should we put the the uh, synopsis of conga on here (laughs) yes that's right we should On the 10th, a week later, and I I swear we had announced this before, and indeed in my notes we said Abominable Snowman from 57 Hammer Film was coming out in November. That's apparently delayed. It's now coming out December 10th. As well as Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde from 1972. I'm sure you're going to rush out and buy that one as well on Blu-ray because you loved it so much.
2: I already have it. That's how good Um, I am. (laughs) Very
1: good. Uh, Also, The Fly Collection Every Fly movie, the original Fly, Return of the Fly, Curse of the Fly, as well as David Cronenberg's version of The Fly and The Fly 2 with Eric Saltz. Big box set.
2: You know, I I have my my box set of the three classic, and it's so good. I, I don't know that they could make them look much better. You know, I suppose, you know, Vincent Price on Blu-ray is, is worth the price alone. Worth the price alone? Ah, yeah.
1: Also on the 17th, another big box set. It's been a while, I think, but it's the third universal box set. You can tell we're kind of getting down into the, oh, I don't want to say lesser movies, but maybe not as, as popular. We've got the Black Cat. No, not the Lugosi Karloff when the 1941 version, Island of Terror, Man-Made Monster, and Tower of London. We also have a standalone release from Shout Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932. I think I'm gonna purchase because when we watched that, it was a a surprise for me that I enjoyed it as much as I remembered. So I, I wouldn't mind having that on Blu-ray. I, I don't have it at all. So
2: yeah, see, I've got that that Bela lugosi set, and that's the struggle with some of these releases. Is like they're splitting up the the films, and you got to do this one and this one, and so some of the choices though for this third volume that you mentioned. The second volume had some deeper dives, I mean, with Murders at the Zoo and The Mad Doctor of Market Street and, well, I forget what the other one was. The Strange Case of Dr. Rx? Yes, anyway. Those never having been released on Blu-ray until late, late in the game and on a kind of pricey Turner Classic movie set. I'm still eyeing that set because copies I have are... Bootlegs off of like 16 millimeter film print, and those are kind of fun films. Lionel Atwill. I don't know what they've got. Maybe, maybe the Aquanetta, <laughs> captive wild woman. I'm waiting for that box set. Yeah, that, you, that's. I don't know much more they got left, but you know that one. God love it. I, I think one of those has never even been released on DVD. I, I think there's still kind of an odd. I don't, I'm not. I'm trying to think. I know that they popped up. I think. One of them popped up on the Universal Vault series, but I'm not sure that they ever did do the other one.
1: And then also, finally, on the 17th, another Hammer film, "To the Devil a Daughter," 1976. Uh, was that their last horror film?
2: They yeah, only did one other classic Hammer film, which, classic in quotation marks, "The Lady Vanishes." Three oh, years later, yeah, so this was, was, was the end of the run. Yeah. yeah, I like that movie. I do too. I yeah. think the
1: ending is controversial for some reason, but I I really liked it. Birthdays in the month of December related to our hagsploitation theme, except for an exception. And I'll get that out of the way. The great Jonathan Frid Barnabas Collins was born December 2nd, 1924. I will always mention that, even if it goes outside topic. The related birthdays, Jimmy Sangster that we mentioned, co-writer of Rue. Who slew Annie Rue? Uh, December second, nineteen twenty-seven, and then we did not mention this person, but the perfect, perfect example of of someone that could be in a hag exploitation film, Ms. Agnes Moorhead. Ah, she yes. was born December sixth, nineteen hundred, and she was in What's the Matter with Helen? She very was very briefly. interesting role.
2: Yeah, very briefly. Yeah, very interesting role. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, she was an excellent actress in old-time radio. She played uh, Margot Lane opposite Lamont Cranston in The Shadow, and she worked alongside Orson Welles and then Bill Johnston. She did that role for several years. And I believe she was in the original radio version of Sorry, Wrong Number Mm. uh, on Suspense, I believe. So, yeah, she actually had a career in radio and did incredibly well. Quite a few movies released in December
1: that are hagsploitation or related. Uh, Berserk that we mentioned, December 6, 1967. The Cat Creature, December eleventh, 1973, was a TV movie. It was directed by Curtis Harrington and featured Meredith Baxter Burney. I don't know what combination of those three names she had at that time. Not exactly hagsploitation, but Curtis Harrington directed that and a, a leading female actress famous for other things hush hush sweet charlotte we mentioned perfect christmas movie december 24th 1964 <laughs> the innocence december 25th another perfect christmas movie 1961 this was pre baby jane and not technically hagsploitation but definitely a horror movie featuring a woman central character and uh, some of the trappings of hagsploitation and then the Nightwalker that we mentioned with Barbara Stanwyck, December thirtieth, nineteen
2: sixty-four. I have to call you out on a birthday that you did miss in December. The incomparable Richard Chamberlain on the 9th of December. <laughs> oh yes. How could you? How could you miss? I mean, Shogun, the Thornbirds. You know, I, I could tell you that you've now spoiled
1: the surprise that I had coming up. Oh but no, that would be a lie. So, <laughs> yes, happy birthday, Richard! I just had to do. I could, I couldn't, I couldn't yes. pass up. Well, maybe this will boost your ego a little bit more, Richard. It's time for my favorite part of the show. What's going on with you? What are you doing on your blog and your other podcasts?
2: You know, um, it's been really quiet post 31 days of Halloween. I you. Just had to take a bit of a break. That that was uh we got it all done, but you know, Vincent Price films, I had so much fun. I needed a break though after that. So we were gonna do, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, we were gonna do the Wistful Vista Wednesdays. We decided to hold off on that and expand it a little bit. We're gonna do that at some point in probably I think the early part of 2020, the first half maybe, and throw in some other old-time radio shows that were adapted into films. There's uh, The Great Gildersleeve, which is a very popular radio show back in the day, was adapted into a series of four films. My Friend Irma, which was a semi-popular radio show, was actually uh, the first two films that Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis did. Plus there's others like I Love a Mystery was adapted and The Whistler. I'm kind of looking at, at tweaking that a little bit and maybe doing some type of of uh, old-time radio adaptation series to expanded beyond that you know i'm going to be covering santa claus and the ice cream bunny over at the Mimiverse monthly audio cast for december i've got some films coming up over at dread media not sure when they're going to be broadcasting but i'm going to be reviewing dr sleep proper i'm going to be reviewing in the tall grass and a movie called The Death Master, which we will talk about that in next month's episode, just as a side note. But uh, anyway, that's about all that's going on with me. I'm going to be doing my usual countdown to Christmas. I got a few random things thrown out in December. And I've also got something that I haven't, I don't think I've told you this, I've got something cooking that i don't want to reveal because if it doesn't pan out then then we'll be disappointing but uh when we turn off the camera or the camera the mics mm. uh i'll let you know what something that mm. I, i've got going on that i thought would be kind of fun i don't think i told you we'll see if it pans out but it'll be something fun that'll be on at CaseyCinephile.com. so mm.
1: eager to hear that glad i may be privy to some uh behind Secret the Secret information. Yes yes, yes,
2: yes. What about you? What's going on? Oh,
1: not much at all. I, we talked at length last time about my move coming up and uh, I was going to take a couple months off so I have not done diddly as they say. I am still doing the uh, DC Comics guy and we're wrapping up Crisis on Infinite Earths. It is... Ironic or not, the last day that uh, that series will end is the day before Thanksgiving. So we can be thankful that it's finally over. But uh, that's that's
2: been a very fun series and, and has really got me geared up for the television adaptation, which will undoubtedly be very different because there's just so many things in the comic book that they could not do, mostly because there's just characters that aren't on the television show. But uh, you've had a lot of that's been a fun series to, to go. There was so much more to that than i ever knew because i wasn't into comics when that came out i had kind of gotten out and i dived into that and i didn't read crisis actually until some point in the 90s i was aware i didn't i didn't become aware of it and i think until like 87 courtesy of some roommates in college so that's been a fun series to follow yeah
1: thank you and i probably will spend the rest of the month of december maybe writing about the tv crossovers i've been watching them and they've been just like the pre-crisis stories in the comic books, Monitor's been showing up here and there in Flash and Arrow, and so I'll probably do some write-ups in December, and then after the new year, kick off with some new comic series. I know I've promised Freedom Fighters, but there's other things I want to do as well. Got nothing but time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then I've been teasing, and you may have figured it out. When we do come back in the new year, I'm I'm expanding. Classic Horrors Club. That'll be happening after the new year to kind of after the break, come back refreshed and with um, not a new focus, but just an expanded focus, I guess at ClassicHorrors.club
2: That's always fun. I, I That was kind of I, I got re-energized when I did that and launched KC Cinephile because I can, I can go back and forth and I can do a month of Vincent Price films and then do something like old-time radio adaptations, which I couldn't do on Monster Movie Kid, but it's kind of fun to go back and forth and, and have, you know, a variety. So, yeah, expanding, you know, Horizons is always good, so I look yeah, forward to yeah. uh, when that happens in the new year. Well, thank you. Well, is there
1: anything else we want to say besides wish all of our listeners happy holidays?
2: No, I think we did a, a pre-Christmas gift exchange here on, on before the recording, so... Got me uh, excited for the holidays this year. I know that there's so many cool things coming out, but at the top of everyone's list, I know if you have I know a lot of people just went ahead and bought it. It's on the top of my Christmas list, Godzilla from Criterion. I'm more hyped up about it now than I was, I think, maybe the last time we talked because I did find out a few more things. That yes, some of the English dubs are available on there. Yes, you know, it sounds like the King Kong versus Godzilla thing, you know, is actually better than what I was thinking it was going to be. And the packaging looks amazing. So that I know, you know, spoiler alert for myself, I know that's my big Christmas gift that is coming my way because that's really what I wanted. And so, you know, is going to get that for me. But I don't have it yet, and I won't until Christmas. So diving into the Godzilla films in the new year is going to be on my list and exposing that to Carla, and that's going to be a bit of a struggle, because she hates animal violence. <laughs> <laughs> and even though we're talking about men's in, men in suits, I mean, yeah, that's, that's still... She enjoys the big monster films, but she feels sorry for Godzilla and sorry for some of the other monsters. I know it sounds silly, but you know, I love that about her. I think once she dives in to the classic Godzilla films, I think she'll enjoy it, because she does enjoy... The big giant monster bug movies of the 50s and uh, obviously the I, I think those kind of go hand in hand and she doesn't has no problem watching the subtitles on film. That'll be something I won't be doing that for the blog, but it'll be something I'll be doing in, in the new year. So other than that, happy holidays everyone. I know we don't have a special holiday episode this year. We couldn't quite pull that off, but if you really want that Santa Claus movie, mimiverse santa claus and the ice cream bunny and that'll give you some visions of sugar plums dancing in your head as we uh inch our way towards uh the night before christmas we we didn't do a holiday
1: gift guide either this year um i will tell everyone though the only one thing i want for christmas and that is for everyone who's listening to leave some feedback just, you know, a little drop on the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast, a phone call to 616-649-2582, an email to club at gmail.com. Just any little thing to uh, to tell us how we're doing and in the form of a uh, rating on iTunes, you know, there's all kinds of ways that that you could reward us more than any type of physical package or gift
2: I can't top that (laughs) I I just I second that you have
1: to because you have
2: to tell people what we're doing next month okay so we're going to be kicking off 2020 with uh, what is actually our third anniversary show maybe we should have had a grander theme but you know what we're going with uh the Count Yorga movies starting off the I'm sure you're going to do some type of have a Yorga new year or something (laughs) like that you always come up with witty titles we're gonna do uh, Count Yorga Vampire and the Return of Count Yorga. Those are first-time viewings for me, and uh, they were they were fun. And so that's what we got coming up uh, next month. Until then, we leave you with this Christmas gift.
1: I I want to sort of do it unceremoniously and just dump it out there, but I also have to express my surprise that this exists. So we leave you with a song. I've written a letter to Daddy by Betty Davis from the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and this is actually from an album called Miss Betty Davis it was released in 1976 and it's available on Apple Music
2: That's the gift that keeps on giving
1: yes happy holidays and we'll uh, see you in January
2: I've written a letter
1: to Daddy, his address is heaven above. I've written, dear Daddy, we miss you and wish you were with us to love. Instead of a standby put kisses, the postman said that's best to do. I've written a letter to Daddy saying. I